Hello and welcome to the Global Insight from Control Risks, the global specialist risk consultancy. I'm your host, Charles Hecker, and this is the podcast where we try to explain what's going on in the world. Long COVID, US-China relations, a shift to greener energy policies, digital acceleration, and the risk of missing the post-COVID rebound. These are the top five risks for global business that Control Risks has identified this year. Think of them, if you will, as a set of lenses with which to view where we're headed. Today's episode is one of a five-part series in which we'll be exploring the regional impact of these global top five risks. And in this episode, we're turning our attention to the Americas. As we enter 2021, unrest across Latin America and the US continues to collide with the shocks of the pandemic. While a new free trade agreement between the US, Canada, and Mexico, as well as a shift in administration in the US, suggests a period of greater stability. Joining me to discuss the impact and the nuance of our top five risks for 2021 in the Americas are two of my colleagues. Jonathan Wood is a director at the firm and our lead analyst for the United States and Canada. Jonathan, welcome. Hi, Chuck. And joining from Sao Paulo is Tomas Favaro. Tomas is a director responsible for the strategic direction and growth of our business in the Southern Cone. Tomas, welcome. Hey, Chuck, Jonathan. Thank you very much for the invitation. Guys, I want to turn over to you and start by opening up the conversation and, and asking you really for your parts of the world, for your patches, which one of our top five speaks to you most directly? Well, Chuck, let me dive in from Washington, where President Biden and Vice President Harris have taken office pledging to get a raging COVID pandemic under control. And so I think in 2021, in the US, that first risk around grappling with the COVID crisis in all of its dimensions, both its, its public health dimensions, its economic issues, the way that it's changing the world of work and technology, the way that it is changing geopolitics and international relations, that is really going to be the primary focus of this government. And they've set out a fairly ambitious agenda in you know, the proverbial first 100 days to both make the US response more coherent and also to make it more effective. And I think when we speak to businesses and certainly the questions that we've all been dealing with for the last year of this pandemic, so many of these questions revolve around you know, capacity of government to provide a stable and predictable environment for business and, and to help business recover from these truly historic disruptions. And so I think the question going forward is going to be, how fast can the U.S. ramp up vaccination? Can it help simplify what has been a very complex and decentralized set of restrictions on business at the state and local level? And can it, and this is perhaps the most difficult task, the one that President Biden alluded to in his inauguration remarks, can it build a sort of popular consensus for this national pandemic response you know, at a time when there are deep political divisions that we've seen on dramatic display and where there's also a lot of opposition to restrictions and, and, and even some to vaccination. I think building that public consensus, a unified national response, that's going to be the biggest challenge in the U.S. 
in 2021? There is certainly no corner in this planet that hasn't been affected by COVID. But even then, I think it's fair to say, without exaggeration, that Latin America has been disproportionately affected by the pandemic. And I'll give you a metric that I think very neatly exemplifies that trend. Latin America concentrates less than 10% of the world's population, but does concentrate over 30% of the deaths related to COVID in 2020-20. So that gives you a magnitude of how much the region has been impacted by COVID in 2020-21 and focusing on vaccination. I think that would be really the key game changer separating those countries who are able to sort of leap ahead and those who will be struggling, you know, behind schedule. And we already have some initial anticipation of how that race is going for Latin America. Broadly speaking, I think it's fair to say that the majority of countries are lagging behind, though there are some important, I guess, caveats or exemptions to be made. There's the fact that Mexico has thus far managed to engage in an immunization program that has covered probably the largest population in absolute numbers. And the fact that Chile has also secured significant significantly large number of vaccines for their population. But broadly speaking, these are exceptions and most countries are still struggling either with the beginning of their vaccination programs, obviously uh, issues associated with rollout, and last but not least, the supply chain of those vaccines, getting the required resources to put those together, whether it is to produce the vaccines, to get the supply required to production of the vaccines, to produce the vaccines, and obviously distribute that among their, you know, large territories and, and populations. Tomas, I want to stay with you for a second before going back to Jonathan. You know, we saw the role of the pandemic in sealing the electoral fate of President Trump in the November elections in the U.S. You've got a series of elections coming up in Latin America in 2021. How has the pandemic changed voting preferences, voting patterns, or, or, or just the emotions of voters and, and what should business be looking out for in some of the more hotly contested elections? Yeah, that's a good question, Chuck. So broadly speaking, the pandemic did at the beginning produce sort of a rally around the flag effect. Not only Latin America, I guess that's probably a global phenomenon, but it was definitely felt in the region as well with politicians, particularly heads of state, getting a boost in their approval ratings temporarily. But that has been very much a temporary phenomenon. You know, six months or nine months into the pandemic, the situation is very different from that. I think most of that effect has dissipated and we're back to where we were prior to the pandemic with most heads of states really struggling with low approval rates and low popularity. That obviously places an additional burden on incumbents. We do have a very interesting electoral calendar for Latin America. This year, we have you know, general elections in Ecuador, Peru, Chile, which remain quite contentious, you know, fiercely contested. And we have a concern that, or many have a concern that, you know, these elections could really shift these countries' trajectories or political trajectories going forward quite significantly. So very importantly there. And last but not least, we also have a couple of midterm elections that will also decide, you know, the conditions under which two important heads of state will also finish their mandates or complete, you know, the second half of their, their terms. These are the midterm elections in Mexico and Argentina. So all in all, like I mentioned, a very interesting electoral calendar for, for Latin America this year. Jonathan, is it all smooth sailing for Biden now in terms of the pandemic? Is there a, a honeymoon period because the bar is so low for him? 
<laughs> I think uh, they would like to be in that situation. However, they've entered office at a time of historic and converging domestic crises, not just COVID-19 and its economic implications, but you know, a racial justice reckoning and what we've seen in the first few weeks of this year, deep political divisions that led to an unprecedented assault on the election and U.S. capital itself. So there really is no honeymoon. There's no time to waste. And the administration has made it clear that it wants to get down to business as soon as possible. I mean, this isn't exactly virgin ground for Biden, who was last in the White House, you know, on on the, the heels of, at that time, the, the worst financial crisis in recent U.S. history as well. And so, you know, taking office at a time of crisis and with many of the people who are in the administration having had that experience means they're in a fairly good position to try to move quickly on this pandemic. But I think what we are already beginning to see is that with very narrow democratic control of Washington, remember the U.S. Senate is effectively tied, and it's only because Vice President Harris has the ability to break those ties that Democrats control the Senate. With that very narrow control, I think we're going to quickly see that traditional pattern of partisan gridlock and obstruction begin to reassert itself. And, and indeed, even in these first few days of this administration, there is beginning to be pushback against a very large new stimulus package, which is really the platform not just for economic recovery, but also for many of the pandemic measures, the National Pandemic Response Plan that Biden would like to put into place. Increased spending for state and local governments, increased spending to ensure that vaccination can proceed more extensively and be free to anyone who needs it. And so we're on the cusp of some, I think, pretty significant political battles over just how far Biden can push this agenda in the early days of his administration. And it seems likely that it might impede the immediate response to COVID, notwithstanding the, the urgency and priority there. Jonathan, your patch is one of the main players in the US-China relationship. But one of the things that we're saying in Risk Map is that the potential for collateral damage to third parties like Brazil is actually fairly high. So what do you guys think about you know, the US-China conflict? I mean, where, where are you on this, Jonathan? And, and, and Tomas, from your perspective in Sao Paulo, are you an observer, a bystander, or are you sort of waiting for impact? Well, Tomas and I speak about this regularly, and I think we expect the Biden administration to carry forward and, and be fairly consistent with many of the harder line policies of the Trump administration on things like trade, export controls, investment restrictions and scrutiny, you know, human rights issues. And, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, Tomas, but, you know, as it pertains to Brazil and other parts of Latin America, environmental issues as well are set to become a much bigger part of this administration's policy set. So I think we will still see Latin America as being caught to some degree within this strategic competition between the U.S. and China, bearing in mind that whether it was the Obama administration or the Trump administration, and probably going forward into the Biden administration, the Western Hemisphere is not its immediate or probably top priority, at least not initially. I very much agree with that, Jonathan. I think very few exceptions we saw of countries trying in Latin America trying to pick sides on this dispute, right? I think the vast majority of countries were really hoping to mend fences or trying to bridge the gaps between the two superpowers and maintain good relationships with both the US and China, almost like a position of non-alignment, uh, so to speak. So I guess this new state 
of the bilateral relation between these two superpowers actually will be quite relieving for many of these Latin American nations, which don't feel they're you know sort of up against the wall for having to pick sides in this dispute. And I think we'll see very interestingly how that will play out. For example, will the pressure from the U.S. to isolate you know some of their competitive players in the 5G technology, for example, how will that play out in Latin America? Will countries adopt any kinds of restrictions towards you know companies of any nationality, or will they maintain an open ground for competition? So I think that's probably the key point to watch going forward in 2020-21. Not least because many of these countries are expected to hold auctions this year, right? Notably Brazil, but also you know, I think there's good probability that that will also take place for other countries in Latin America, like Colombia and Mexico as well. Tomas, you touched on technology there. And one of the things that we discuss in RiskMap is, is cyber and digital acceleration. And you know what happens when companies or, or governments take you know, five-year strategic tech plans and, and basically execute on them in the space of five weeks. What have you been observing around the region, whether it's with clients and companies or in government policies? Tomas, what have you been seeing around the region? Jonathan, what will happen under the Biden administration on tech in the U.S.? Well, for Latin America, it's been very interesting to speak and talk to so many security directors and seeing their attention shifting so quickly from you know physical security to digital security, so to speak. If you look, for example, the number of or the, the, the statistics concerning street crime in major urban sectors across Latin America, it's fair to say that they have tanked, you know, in the majority of major cities across the region as people went home on self-isolation and adopting, again, social distancing measures. At the same time, we also saw sort of a significant spike in digital scams, WhatsApp frauds, other kinds of telephone fraud. And obviously, that's just the tip of the iceberg, right? If you look at the broader picture, the reality is organized crime was also heavily impacted by the pandemic. It's been difficult not just to move across borders, but also to move goods, including illicit goods, <laughs> across borders. So it remains to be seen whether the cyber world will become you know, this new attractive field for those organizations keen on diversifying their operations, right? Attacks on remote workers, uh, you know, this is not exactly something new, but is obviously, you know, gaining a new significance on the back of the pandemic. The same applies to other types of digital threats. For example, if you look at digital extortion, it has grown a lot in the last few years and I think continues to be a, a key point to watch in 2020-21. If you look, for example, ransomware attacks, you know, seeking to extract valuable data from, you know, organizations, whether that's related to intellectual property, research and development, or even just confidential information about the company's customers. I think this is a trend that is certainly likely to continue on an upward trajectory and bringing additional challenges for companies who are adopting this new life in the digital space. I think that's a really great point. And we're seeing some similar trends in the US as well, both in terms of the reduction in you know, common crime and street crime as a result of lockdowns and restrictions on social mobility, but also a real shift into some of those areas of digital crime. And there's particular concern here, for example, around fraud and crimes targeting the vaccine supply chain, precisely because there's so much kind of complexity and uncertainty around access to that process. And we might, you know, I think we'll probably see that play out more over the course of 2021. And it points to, I think, going back to your question, Chuck, around technology and you know, sort of its role in the business and investment climate. I mean, one of the things that's really interesting about the Biden administration's approach is that it maintains a kind of 
you know, focus on the domestic economic recovery on America, uh, not not necessarily America first, but certainly by American, higher American type policies. And this is particularly true in the technology domain where the administration is really keen to promote and invest in, you know, what it, what it styles as a kind of innovation agenda, research and development, you know, manufacturing, reshoring, or, or perhaps nearshoring into the region and sort of shortening some of those supply chains, especially related to the pandemic and to things like medical equipment, but looking forward to maybe the next pandemic or the next major technological set of innovations where, you know, there is a consensus in the U.S., I think shared by both parties, that it has perhaps become overly dependent on, you know, very long international supply chains in technology and where, where there is a desire to begin to bring some of those closer to home over the next few years. Jonathan, for anybody watching the proceedings of Inauguration Day in the United States, once President Biden took up residence in the Oval Office, there was this huge pile of leather-bound folders on his desk that he was signing on his first day. And one of those was the United States rejoining the Paris Accords on Climate Change. That's a massive gesture. It's a massive reversal from the previous administration. And, you know, for the U.S. and for Brazil, this is going to be a, a huge shift in emphasis. What should we be looking for? It is a massive reversal. I think probably we, we talked about some continuity in U.S.-China. Conversely, we have a complete shift in emphasis and direction on climate and environment. And that rejoining the Paris Accord, recommitting the U.S. to ambitious emissions reduction targets is a core part of that. Now, Biden has spoken very openly in his inaugural address. He described the climate crisis. He has said that he sees this as the most significant challenge that the U.S. faces um, since World War II. And he has, throughout his administration, really sought to push climate change as a policy priority in, in ways big and small. Uh, and so it is a big change. And, and in addition to those executive orders that he signed shortly after taking office, you know, we're going to see a push on regulation. We're going to see perhaps legislative initiatives. We're going to see what Biden has described as a you know build back better agenda of stimulus that tries to engineer a green recovery by investing in things like renewables, energy efficiency, and other areas of that broader agenda. And I think one place that we're going to also see this is, is in the U.S.'s international relations. I think Biden has made it clear that, you know, rejoining the Paris Agreement is one thing that is designed to give the U.S. credibility on climate change, but that it will now begin to push its allies and partners to make more ambitious commitments as well. And, you know, Biden has tapped former Secretary of State John Kerry, who negotiated the Paris Agreement for, on, on behalf of the U.S. to be his international climate czar. There's some indication that within the next few months, perhaps on Earth Day, which I know is a which I know Tomás is a very symbolic and important day in Brazil as well, the U.S. might try to convene some type of international climate summit. So all of the indicators are pointing towards fairly ambitious and, and fairly swift action on this front. And I'm very sure that message is being watched very closely in Brasilia because I think it's very clear that the government in Brazil more or less fears how the U.S. will react and how much emphasis it will put on the environmental issue within its broader foreign policy, including but not exclusive to Latin America and Brazil. This is likely to become a particularly hot issue in Brazil 
once again, you know, later this year, when the dry season in the Amazon resumes and we have an uptick in deforestation, the issues around, you know, environmental protection and ESG more broadly will likely to resurface once again. It's highly unlikely that the involvement of the armed forces in the protection of the rainforest that the government proposed will bring in the desired results, not least because the rhetoric coming from the federal government has changed you know, little to nothing in, in the last year. And if you look also on the actions that have been undertaken to protect the Amazon environment more broadly, I think it's very clear that there is a lot more to be done in terms of delivering good results and to the extent that Brazil risks being penalized to some degree for failing to protect its natural resources or even failing to commit to more ambitious targets on the back of you know, the Paris Agreement. And this, I think, risks becoming a hot potato automatically between the two countries. It's obvious that the scrutiny is very much on the Brazilian government and the actions it will pursue. But I would also point out that it's not solely on government authorities, you know, companies that obviously those that operate directly in the, the region, they are on the spotlight and they will remain so. But even we're seeing sort of a greater scrutiny towards companies that are authority operating indirectly or are indirectly related to the Amazon environment. For example, they have supply chains that for some reason touch or across the region. There's a lot of scrutiny from you know, consumers, from regulators, investors. Basically, there's a wider group of stakeholders that wants to ensure that they are not you know, directly or indirectly contributing to deforestation in Brazil and in broader Latin America. So this is definitely an area where we see a lot of action in 2020-21. I completely agree with that, Tomas. And I think we see something very similar in the US where there is increased scrutiny on corporate action one of the things we're watching closely this year is to see if, for example, the government tries to push climate risk disclosure requirements for listed companies in the U.S. But even if, you know, whether and how that happens, I think we will continue to see a lot of scrutiny from activists, shareholders, civil society, and, you know, su suppliers and customers of these companies as well as to, you know, what their climate commitments are and how they are implementing those within their organization. So completely agree on that point. Let's end the podcast with a forecast and talk a little bit about when to anticipate the recovery and how companies should get ready for it and, and when it's coming. You know, the vaccine rollout has begun across your region, gentlemen. What's your view on when we'll get to a point that restrictions can lift and economic activity can return? Well, I'll go first. I think I have this, this slightly easier task than Tomas because we're only talking about one country, albeit fairly large and complex one, whereas he's got to deal with the whole region. So there you go, Tomas. But, you know, in the US, you're exactly right. The rollout of the vaccination program is going to be a key variable in getting back to some type of new normal for, you know, both business and social life. And there's some optimism that you know, within the first half of the year, a substantial portion, maybe even most of US adults could be vaccinated against COVID. The Biden administration has set, you know, as a somewhat interim target of 100 million doses or courses in, in 100 days, which seems achievable, although we do have some limitation of the supply of vaccine at the moment in some parts of the country. But that vaccination rollout is important. It is also only one part of the challenge over the next few months for the recovery. And you rightly point out that if vaccination takes hold, 
if the ambient level of business activity increases, we could be looking at a very sharp rebound globally, and especially here in the US in 2021, perhaps to about you know, even up to like 4% annualized GDP growth by the end of the year, compared to you know, a 3.5% contraction in 2020. So a very significant shift. But from the economic standpoint, a lot of that depends as well on the amount and speed and type of any further economic stimulus. And, you know, as I mentioned earlier, there are political disagreements over how much and how to distribute that kind of money. The Democrats are seeking, you know, $1.9 trillion, and that's a big chunk of direct payments to households, but also money for state and local governments to prevent, you know, layoffs of public servants and, and the like. And I think it seems likely that the opposition Republicans will seek a lower amount. So those more optimistic and faster rebound scenarios, they incorporate the fact that with Democrats in control of Washington, there is a higher likelihood of stimulus, but they do also depend on that. And, and it may not be as large, as fast, or as well-targeted as we might hope. And I'll just say one last thing on this as well, because this is something that is of increasing concern to Democrats in Washington and, and of a high priority for Biden's administration. And that is to make that stimulus and the overall process of economic recovery inclusive. And we haven't seen that to date. We, we probably have arguably what you might think of as a K-shaped recovery where high-income earners and some large companies have done fairly well, both out of prior stimulus packages and out of their ability to adapt, you know, flexibly to COVID-19 restrictions in terms of things like remote working and technology adoption. But small businesses, jobs that don't have the luxury of working remotely, haven't had the same kind of economic recovery. And I think a big challenge for the Biden administration this year, in line with its political priorities, is going to be making sure that the recovery is broad-based and a tie that lifts all boats and not just those that have already managed to survive the pandemic relatively well. Yeah, and I guess the, the, the economic recovery that you're alluding to in the West, you know, we all know it's likely to be mirrored in Europe, it's likely to be mirrored, you know, in parts of Asia. And that is generating, I think, a quite broadly favorable scenario for Latin American economies to recover as well. You know, in the US, I think in addition to the, the economic stimulus that you mentioned, we also have a scenario of, you know, expected relatively low interest rates over an extended period of time. And that obviously fosters appetite for investment in emerging markets. Whether you look, for example, at other issues or other drivers such as commodity prices, the outlook for commodity prices is also broadly positive. You know, soy is likely to emerge as one of the main agricultural commodities in 2020-21. And we know that's a key component of the you know, export basket of a lot of countries in the southern cone. If you look, for example, metal prices, notably iron ore, iron ore was probably one of the you know best performing commodities in 2020, growing rapidly due to strong Chinese demand. I think also a broadly positive outlook for 2020-21. So in short, I guess the real danger is falling into the false perception that a high tide will automatically and inevitably lift all boats. I know that's the expression that Jonathan also used, but I use that in a different setting because these countries also have, you know, incredible challenges ahead in order to really materialize that opportunity. The first, both of you pointed out, is probably vaccine rollout. But a second great concern across Latin America is the reality is Latin America was already in a weak fiscal position prior to the pandemic and the 
stimulus programs that were implemented during the pandemic to offset, you know, its most negative socioeconomic effects have only exacerbated those fiscal disparities. And many countries are struggling with very high debt to GDP levels. So making sure, you know, you do the homework in order to maximize the potential recovery will be very much high up in the list for countries in Latin America in 2020-21. I so badly want to wrap this podcast by continuing the maritime metaphor and talk about tides and, and boats and maybe with something about pulling into harbor with all of us. But I think we should probably just leave it there and say some thank yous, first of all, to Jonathan Wood for dialing in from Washington, D.C. Thanks, Jonathan. My pleasure. And Tomas, always good to hear from you. Thank you very, very much for joining from Sao Paulo. Thank you, Chuck and Jonathan. Always a pleasure. That's all for this special edition of The Global Insight. Tune in tomorrow for a look at the top five in Europe. You can also visit controlrisks.com for our full Risk Map 2021 forecast, which includes our top five risks, key topics picked by our analysts, a calendar of geopolitical events throughout the year, and the actual map of political and security risks for 2021, which is where the name Risk Map comes from to begin with. Thank you, and bye for now. Thank you.